From FasterMind.co, this is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Converge is a show about that space, that tension between the stuff you make and making money or something valuable from your stuff. The show lives where creativity and business collide, giving all of us the opportunity to rethink how we work and live in the digital economy. I love success stories, especially when those success stories involve unlikely heroes. John Fox is my guest. He is an academic by trade. He has a terminal degree in fine art. He has his MFA. And for those of you who understand that world a little bit, you recognize right away that people who get that kind of a degree and commit to the academic life, they're on one track. Their job is to somehow secure tenure at a university or a college or a place of higher learning. And once they're in that position, to hold that position and to make a career out of it. Well, about a decade in, John decided to take a turn, and he traded in his academic life for an entrepreneurial life, and he decided to choose his own adventure. Now, full disclosure, John is also a Go Summit alumni. He is one of our own, and since he attended Go this year, and I don't want to take false credit here because clearly he's the one who did the work, but post-Go, he has published his first book and has forged a five-figure-a-month business in mere months, uh, not years, friends, just out of the gate when he got clear and he got committed and he got wholeheartedly after it. But of course, I don't want to tell his story for him. I'll let him do that. But I do want you all to know that you are going to be the benefactors and you are in for a treat. John Fox, welcome to Converge. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited on several levels to share uh, your story with our audience today, mainly because you are somebody who has gone through such a significant pivot with a pre-existing arsenal of talent. Your story, as I understand, I'd love you to clarify, is here you are, this guy going down the higher ed track, uh, you have a terminal degree in fine art, and you are focused on getting on that road to the dream of tenure at a prestigious school. And you decided to make a shift away from kind of higher ed and toward entrepreneurship with your skill set around writing. And it just so happens, just for context, you all know at home, John and I have a common friend. uh, It's his wife, uh, Amber, who I've known for a long time. And she's been a part of our community. Many of you guys know Amber Fox. But uh, John's story, uh, he came into this community a little bit more hesitantly, and, <laughs> and I respect that. I always respect skeptics. But John, tell us a little of your story on the road you thought you were going to go on and what shifted for you, and, uh, and we'll pick it up from there. Yeah, so I adjuncted at the university level for about a decade, which, I mean, adjuncting basically means you're driving, you're commuting to two or three colleges throughout a week and earning just embarrassingly low pay. So when the boys were born, my twin, I have twin boys, I stayed home with them because that was the sensible thing to do. And, you know, Dane, I don't know if you know this, but caring for infants is not the most glamorous ego stroking <laughs> job in the world. So when my twins got a little bit older, I started to think about career stuff again, and I really didn't know what to do. I knew I didn't want to go back to adjuncting, didn't want to go back to the university because there was no way I was working my way back into a tenure track job. So I told my wife, I remember I was standing in the kitchen with my wife and I remember telling her, I am qualified to do nothing, literally 
nothing other than teach at the university level, but I was earning, you know, no money and they don't want me because I don't have a PhD. I mean, I have two master's degrees, but without a PhD, you might as well have your GED at the university. You're a pariah. So I was just stuck and I didn't know what to do. So I guess I just took stock of my situation. I said, okay, like, what do I have at my disposal? Are there any skills that I have? I just did an inventory of my life and my skills. And basically the thing that I came up with was my website. I've had a blog since 2006. It was getting, you know, okay traffic, maybe 10,000 visitors a month or so, but I'd never been able to make any money off of it. And so I thought, you know, I should try to do something with that. And so I got about 20 interns. Did you say 20? Yeah. <laughs> How did you do that? That's a ridiculous amount of stuff. How did you do that? <laughs> well, I taught a course at Chapman University in writing for online media. And I, you know, and those kids are paying kind of a ridiculous amount of money for it. And I thought, what if I give that to kids for free? So I took all my curriculum and I got all these interns who wanted to write about creative writing type stuff. And I said, look, I'm going to teach you everything I know about writing for blogs and online media. And so we just collaborated for a summer. It was the summer of 2016. And, you know, I was teaching them everything I knew about writing for blogs and how to get an audience and like coaching them through like, this is how you, you know, get a job in the writing industry. And they all had different aims on what they wanted to do as writing career jobs. And I was just trying to give them advice on how to do that. I was trying, you know, not to be exploitative because I think a lot of internships can be that way, but uh, I felt like I was giving them a lot of helpful stuff. And by the end of the summer, I just had a lot more content on the blog. You know, it jumped me from 800 articles to 900 articles, but the articles that we were writing were targeted. And that jumped my traffic by, you know, December of 2016, I was getting about 150,000 visitors a month. Wow. And that was enough to monetize. Well, that's so striking to me. So I think my favorite part about what you're saying so far is there's something in your mindset that shifted. And I love that you kind of, you started with looking at what resources you had access to and how could you repurpose those resources and the very clever approach to getting a full blown, <laughs> not just a little staff, but a massive staff. I know you were stuck and you weren't getting what you wanted to get out of the equation. But it sounds like fundamentally something shifted more than just, gosh, I need to pay the bills. Like it feels like you, you took a different degree of responsibility. Yeah, I think my mindset changed. And part of that is having kids. When you have kids, you feel more responsible for them. You start thinking about paying for their college. You start thinking about paying for school and all the activities. And so I did think more monetarily. But you know, in the in the writing world, there's two tracks. There is the New York track, which is where you sell a book and you earn a lot of money. And there's the the MFA track where you write really obscure experimental stuff and then you get a job at a university. And I'd always thought the university track, that's how I'm going to earn money. And then I started to think, no, no, no. What about this New York track? Maybe I should just try to sell a big book and earn money that way. And I actually didn't go for either of those routes. I chose the entrepreneurial track, which is where you publish and then you use your base, your website or your social media feeds in order to be a teacher through online 
media. So you wouldn't qualify someone like a New Yorker goes the you know the route of writing a, a book. Like when you say New Yorker, that's what I think of like just the publishing industry. You wouldn't call that entrepreneurship. You would just call that what? I think some of those people are entrepreneurs, uh, but a lot of them are just freelancers. Right. They're essentially selling themselves to the publishing industry. They're an employee almost of this publishing industry, but it's not a great relationship when you get 10% of the earnings. I think an entrepreneur is able to get, they have access to more of more of the stages of production, right? Yeah, well, it's, more, it's, just more selling a, their book. yeah it's a, more of a comprehensive ownership. Yeah, someone just selling their book is relying upon the publishing industry to do all the work of finding readers and and preparing the book, getting the cover image, having someone edit it, all that sort of stuff. And if you're an entrepreneur, like you're doing a lot of that yourself. Right. Yeah, that really resonates. Seth Godin talks a lot about the distinction between a freelancer and an entrepreneur. And I don't want to pretend like I'm representing him when I say this, but as I remember his distinction, he would talk about the goal of a of a freelancer is really to get the most they can per hour. Once in a while, you can take that and put it in a, a package like a book or whatever and sell that book over and over again. If you get a massive bestseller, then great. But in many cases, if you can't do that, you're, it's just um, I have a talent and I'm trading that talent in for money. And that's your best option is to get the highest rate per hour. Whereas in entrepreneurship, he would say, no, you're building an asset. And that asset, you can do a lot of things with it. It's, it's Some have called it a platform. Some have called it a, a brand. But there's some thing that is distinct from you that doesn't require your hours yet can generate significant value over time. And in many cases, at least he suggests, don't go work for your own company. <laughs> but you've decided to do that where you're actually working for your company and building an asset at the same time. Is that a fair way to portray it? Well, I'm still pretty early into it. You know, I'm really eight months into my business. Yeah, well, I actually want to talk about that because that's what's so significant to me is you and I have known each other for a bit, known of and then met. But this year in January, you came to the Ghost Summit and you are our, our conference. For you guys don't know, we do a conference every year here in Southern California. And you came down and I remember talking to you before the event and you came to the event. And then afterwards, all of a sudden, like within weeks, it felt like I heard book done, the business, five figures a month. Yeah. Like your wife saying to me, yeah, I can pull back on my business a little bit because he's carrying so much of the weight right now. <laughs> like I'm so struck by that like explosion of value that got created or I don't know what all went into that, but tell a little of that story because you're right. This is such a new venture, relatively speaking. And it sounds like it's a story that's being told in real time. I mean, yeah, the Go Summit was really helpful with the second stage of my expansion. And I'll talk about the first stage first. So the first stage that made all the difference in the world for me was SEO. You know what SEO is? Basically, you're talking about search engine optimization and the ability to be found on the internet. Yes. And I would define SEO as unselfish blogging. So for nine years, I blogged selfishly. Everything that I wrote about was what I wanted to blog about. It, what, it was what interested me. And then I got a subscription to SEMrush, which tells you what everybody in the world is searching for online. And I figured out what other people were interested in, what they were searching for. And then what I did was I wrote and had interns write long, fantastic articles that met the needs of those people. And boom. Six months later, and you know, I'm hitting the 150,000 unique visitors a month. Amazing. What was this magical resource that you discovered? 
SEMrush, S-E-M Rush. Fascinating. And, you know, you get a subscription for 70 bucks a month. I think I had it for two months. I wrote down a whole bunch of amazing keywords that I want to target and then just started going through them one by one and just giving people what they wanted. And people make SEO really, really complicated. All it is is making something that people want. I mean, there was nothing online for long sentences. I could not find a repository of long sentences online, like a whole bunch of sentences over 100 words. Okay, so I made that. And now that gets 3,000 unique visitors a month. There was no repository of good sex writing online. Huh. There is an award for bad sex writing. So you can find all sorts of terrible sex writing out there, but nobody was actually listing good sex writing. So, you know, for the purposes of writers everywhere, I want them to write good sex, right? I don't want them to write bad sex scenes. So I made a list of really well-written sex scenes. And, you know, I think a few more people other than just writers are using that one. Yeah, no kidding. Well, it's so funny because I love the distinction of going from what do I want to write to treating writing or any kind of medium that you're communicating through as a service to the folks that are receiving it. And it sounds like this subscription really opened up, like it could actually say, force you into the position of, oh, I'm only, this is the purpose of my writing. This is what I'm creating for. And it's not just about self-expression in the hopes that you resonate with the zeitgeist. It's more really and intentionally speaking to an audience that has already said, hey, I'm I'm a proven market that's waiting to be served if you'd only pay attention to me. Yes. <laughs> I love the dramatic pause. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and so let's, right. talk, let's talk about it. Okay, so, you, so again, you cleared the deck for part one and you, you have an audience you're speaking to, you're, you're forcing yourself into this built-in constraint where you're writing specifically to what they say they're wanting. So that's the first part. And talk about the second part. Okay. So this is what I think Go Summit really helps me with. So if you're listening to this and you have a free plan with MailChimp or any other email provider, you're dumb. And here's why. <laughs> and I say that because, you know, I did for a really long time thinking I was smart because I was saving money. Right. But the main thing you need an email distributor for is automation. Like that made the hugest difference. So I went to Go Summit. I listened to stuff on email automation. And automation, once I set it up, so that anybody who joined my list got a series of four emails, you know, they got a free PDF, then they got an introduction to me in the website, then they got links to three great articles that I'd written, all spaced out over two, three weeks. That doubled my revenue. Right. And just for context for folks, and we'll put these in the show notes, both SEMrush and also ConvertKit, which is who we use as well for uh, email automation. And one of our speakers was from ConvertKit, incredible job of articulating like why you're doing automation in the first place. So if that's resourceful for you guys at home, it'll be a good place to check out. But keep going. He was amazing. He was amazing. And even though I haven't changed to ConvertKit, I know I will. It's just going to take a little bit. <laughs> sure, sure. No, it makes sense. Why haven't you yet? And what would be the thing that would make the difference for you to do it? I just set up everything with MailChimp. Got it. Right. Like so I you, just so you're, out you're, you're paying for the premium side of MailChimp now for the yeah. automated purses, purposes. And yeah. it, it hasn't made sense for you, for you to make the leap. But why would you if you did? 
I've just heard enough people tell me that the segmentation on ConvertKit is leaps and bounds beyond what MailChimp does. And segmentation basically means you can email a very small portion of your list that's into one very specific thing. And then, you know, a different portion of your list, which is in something different, you don't have to bog them down with something they're not interested in. You can send a different specific email to them making money off whatever they need. Right. To me, that's the biggest difference. I don't know what you think the biggest difference is. Yeah, I think smart segmentation is a big deal. And I was with MailChimp for a long time. I was with AWeber before then. I think there's a lot of great premium, like that you're paying for services. I think ConvertKit, for me, I was considering the big leap to Infusionsoft or one of these like really big monsters. The more I stared at it, the more I was like, I think I can get about 80% of this done for a fraction of the price and do it elegantly without kind of the pain of Infusionsoft. And that idea was validated enough times with friends who had used it. And I, you know, I know the founder and I thought this just makes sense. So we, we really dove in full bore and have been very pleased. Daryl Westerfeld, who was, who was a speaker at the conference, he was also very instrumental for me, just seeing how the way that they were relating with email, it sounds kind of funny to put it that way, but it just seemed less about opportunism and more about, look, how do humans actually work? And this is just a medium to have a conversation with humans and not bug them with kind of spammy, well, not spammy, but like shotgun approaches to communication. Mm-hmm. And ConvertKids kind of enabled us to have more one to, it feels and honestly is more one, closer to one to one, but doesn't have the labor associated with one to one communication. So mm-hmm. I think that's the part. And segments are really interesting because people fall into categories. I really am addressing very precise personal needs when I'm communicating to a, a narrow band of people. And the distinction in what they need is not very distant. But when I go after everybody with one communication, I think that's where I'm really trying to, I'm really asking a lot of my reader when they only care about 10% of a communication and I'm giving them a big bundle of stuff when I can very easily give them a narrow band of communication that really hits a home run from what they're looking for. That's when I found like an incredible return. So I don't have a thing to say negatively about MailChimp or any place else. I do know though that ConvertKit was an upgrade and I'm shocked at you can see by their growth why so many people are, are caring about it. But but I think the point I want to make is it's not about ConvertKit. It's not about an email blaster. It's not even about segmentation. In my mind, it's about, to your point, talking to an audience in a way that's relevant to them, not me, and giving them value in that communication that's precise. And if I can do that with any tool, that's the tool I want to use. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. I mean, I've tried so many other social media platforms. I was trying to game Twitter for the longest time, and man, I just got nothing out of it. Mm-hmm. And I've tried Facebook groups, I've tried Instagram, I've tried a lot of different social media platforms, and I don't think anything compares to email. Yeah. Yeah, there's something about the sacred inbox that just kind of, you're really getting into their sacred space. And I saw this really interesting article not too long ago talking about junk mail, where, you know, when we get mail at the end of the day, physical mail in our mailbox. I go through the stack every day and there's two piles. There's a pile that goes in the trash and there's a pile I open. And I'm realizing that's what email is. It's just people are just combing through and going, there's something I'm going to pay attention to. And the rest is going in the trash. I'm not even going to, I don't care how glitzy it looks. There's nothing quite as personal as that transaction of filtering, like who's in and who's out. And I think you're right. I don't think email will ever go away in that regard. It feels like a very personal communication. And if you sort of get in the right stack, <laughs> then you win. Yeah. And it's funny too, like what you said about, you know, these other social platforms and stuff and gaming things. And 
I've never been successful with those things. I know of others folks who, who've been, who've tried to really game it, but it just, I've never, especially now, it almost feels like a lot of freelancers and entrepreneurs, if they're unconscious about it, are relating with all these platforms more like a chore that they have to go do than a real conversation with human beings. Like yeah. it almost, remi- I don't know if you ever watch Lost. Yeah. Remember the code for those of you at home, you don't know what I'm talking about, forgive me, but uh, there was a special code that had to be pressed into a, an old ancient machine in, uh-huh. underground at the island. And if it didn't get pressed, the whole world was going to blow up kind of thing. But they never really <laughs> knew if the world was going to blow up, but they didn't want to find out by not pressing the code in. That kind of feels like what social media is these days for a lot of people. Like they're just doing it, but they don't know why. And they don't know if it's getting an impact. And they certainly don't know if they're having a real conversation with anybody. (laughs) (laughs) You win most amazing reference for this podcast. That was awesome. I'll be back with the rest of the conversation right after this short break. Have you invested in conferences or workshops that left you empty handed? There was great content and you had great ideas about what to go do with it but no change actually happened. That's not okay. At Go Summit, we're committed to helping you take action. To do that, we add personalized coaching and customized marching orders alongside the inspiring speakers, amazing location, and fun networking events. Honestly, there's nothing quite like it. Register today before tickets sell out at fastermind.co forward slash Go Summit. You made these shifts, you kind of reset around your communication, specifically with the inbox. You go full board and talk about the results. Like what happened post go? You know, I think there was one other thing that happened is I had been concentrating for a long time on trying to earn money through advertisement and affiliate links, both of which are absolutely terrible ways to earn money. I mean, even if you're selling advertisements directly to people rather than using Google ads, it's kind of an enormous amount of work and for the traffic that you're getting, you will never earn more money off of advertisements than selling something yourself. Right. Right. And then the affiliate links just this month, Amazon completely revamped its system and cut my cut down 30%. Yeah. So it's a terrible business model to rely upon this massive corporation that does not care about you at all for the majority of your business income. Yeah. And that's true of everybody who's doing, like if you're doing your business on Facebook, if you're doing your business on Google, Amazon, like any of these kind of where they, they own the land, but you're kind of renting the land from them for a minute or borrowing it and trying, like they can always change the rules, right? And they're going to. Amazon's only picking up more space. And once you become dispensable, they're going to dispense with you. Yeah. So I see affiliate links going down even further in the future. But overall, like if you can build a business that is not reliant on any of these gigantic corporations, you're much better off. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I started advertising myself as an editor. And I've edited work for a really, really long time for all my writing friends and obviously for students. And And just so folks are at home, if they're not super literary, you're talking about fiction work in particular, right? Like that was your training and you're writing fiction books, not nonfiction work or you're editing or you're helping other people write those kinds of books. Is that true? Or is it, were you writing in Actually, when I started, I was like, I will edit anything. (laughs) And by when I started, I mean like four months ago. Incredible. Incredible. So I was like, I'll edit anything. And then I realized that's a terrible approach. So then I started writing specific pages for each type of editing I wanted to do. So I wanted, the first thing I started with was short story editing. 
So within, I think, four months, I was the very top hit on Google when anybody, you know, Googled short story editor or short story editing. Mm. And I think that's a great strategy is pick a small niche and try to become number one in that niche. Like not a ton of people are looking for short story editor, but because I was number one, it worked out really well for me. Yeah, there's a lot of people on the internet. So <laughs> so if even a yeah. couple of them are looking in that direction, right, right. So I was doing that and then um, I got into children's book editing and now I'm doing a lot of novel editing. And I was taking nonfiction and then I realized... I don't like editing nonfiction. Hmm. I need to specify more. So I specified from all to fiction. And then I realized I don't like doing copy editing, which is like the nuts and bolts, line editing, sentence editing. I like doing developmental editing, which is where you say, you know what, move this chapter over here, cut this character out. This place needs to be a lot faster. And so I specified again, I'm trying to get as narrow as possible so that what I'm doing is very, very specific and I become known for what I'm doing and people will seek me out for doing developmental editing for fiction. And then the results. So you're number one in these categories. You're actually, people are paying you real cash money. You're not doing the affiliate thing. You're not doing the advertising thing anymore. You're not trying to find the, the cheap shortcuts. You're just straight up talking directly to your audience about what they say they want and you deliver and that yields what for you. Well, you know, eight months later, I just had my first five-figure month. So for those of you at home, five figures means north of $10,000 <laughs> in a month. You do the math on that in less than a year, if this maintains, and I don't see a reason why it shouldn't, it sounds like you've instantly created a six-figure income. Yeah, but I'm going to take the summer off. You know, I mean, <laughs> there's no sense earning that much money. Seriously, I was talking to my sister. She is an entrepreneur who builds website. And I was telling her, I'm earning all this money. Like when the twins go to elementary school, then I'm really going to start earning the big bucks. And she told me, John, why would you want to work more than 20 hours a week? Oh, excellent point. I don't want to work more than 20 hours a week. And I should mention too, this month, I haven't been working more than 20, 25 hours a week. Incredible. And my expenses, I'm keeping less than $200 a month. Friends, do the math on this. This, this is so for you at home. <laughs> I want to turn a corner on this conversation because we're almost out of time. But given that those kinds of results, given that your methodical approach, your activity level, you're engaged, you're clearly motivated. If you're having coffee with a friend, you've already given some direct action items. You have coffee with a friend who has ambition. But what if that person in particular, and this happens a lot for folks that I get in conversations with, that first step where you meant from I'm doing what I want to do to I'm doing what my customers want me to do, and it's actually the customers I want to work for, what do you say to folks that are just kind of stuck? Like they're, they're like, like I, I'm, I'm thinking specifically, like in my background, as you know, is uh, photography for many years, but even beyond photographers, just folks who are like, I want to be a graphic designer. I want to be a photographer this way. And yet they are, have a significant complaint around how few customers they have or that they aren't getting the kind of leads that they wish they were. What are some things that you either ask about or share directly over coffee with a friend who's in that position? Oh, gosh, I need like half an hour. <laughs> Take, uh, your time. Okay. Take your time. I'll shorten it. I'll shorten it. First of all, the main problem of businesses is marketing. That is the main problem is getting new clients. How do you do that? Especially for entrepreneurs. So, I mean, I solved that problem with SEO. That's not the only way to solve it. 
But if you can write stuff that gets a lot of eyeballs of potential customers online, then you're going to have a steady stream of new people, you know, new clients. I would also say that I think you need to be really smart as an artist and know that nobody makes money selling art. Everybody makes money teaching other artists how to be artists. Hmm. So, I mean, I'm never going to probably make enormous amounts of money selling my books. But what my books do is they certify that I'm legit. And so people trust me and they'll have me edit their fiction. Let's translate that. So let's say I'm a wedding photographer. And what I'm hearing you say is what I should do is teach people how to be a wedding photographer after I have a body of work that proves that I'm authority in wedding photography. Absolutely. That's where you make the real money. Right. So, and then the complaint, of course, in the industry is like, oh, well, those are the sellouts, right? They're the educators. They're like Sanders. Like, you got to be careful of those guys. <laughs> Funny, what I love about this conversation, John, just speaking candidly, like when you and I knew of each other, but didn't know each other, I could, again, I made a joke of this at the beginning, but there was a kind of a healthy skepticism about what I was doing, right? So, and that's a voice. I'm of, just a skeptical person. Well, don't take it personally. <laughs> I don't. I don't take it personally at all. In fact, I'm curious about it because. I think this is a common lament that a lot of folks experience. There's a voice in their head that says, okay, that I say I want to make a lot of money, but what it takes for me to make a lot of money is to reach an audience and deliver something they really want. There's a lot more people who want to become a photographer than there are who need my photography services this month. Or, and again, I'm not picking on photographers. It could be any category. And there's also a lot of people out there teaching. Yeah, I'm good with a camera, but I'm not necessarily good as a teacher. So all these kind of self-defeating internal conversations that are going on for people, should they try to overcome those things or should they just reset and go, look, I'm not in this to make a bunch of money. I'm in this because I'm in this for self-expression or I'm in this because I just want to, you know, if it's photographing weddings, photograph weddings. What did you enjoy about photographing weddings, Dan? What did I enjoy about it? Yeah. Well, I don't do it anymore, but when I did do it, I enjoyed the gear. I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed looking down at the camera and having this moment of like, oh, wow, I I made that. And I also enjoyed, especially enjoyed when others had a wow moment. Like, I can't believe that that photograph exists. I'm in it. Like, and they come over and affirm. And so I got a lot of kind of joy out of that experience. You got joy out of helping other people, of taking an amazing fascinating, good, photograph good, good, of somebody good, good, good. And, and making them excited. I mean, that's what teaching's about. I mean, I am fulfilling authors' dreams as an editor. I am literally making their dreams come true. I take their book, the thing that they've worked over, that they've slaved over, and I help them make it better so that they feel better about it and their readers will love it even more. And for a photographer, whether you are taking pictures of people or whether you are educating other photographers, I mean, you're ultimately doing it for the other person. You are fulfilling their dream of becoming a photographer or getting amazing pictures of them. I love this because let's say I answered like, I just love clicking buttons (laughs) and I really love like getting my shutter speed and aperture dialed in just right. I like wouldn't that. have believed you. <laughs> what if, okay, let me tack another direction uh, as a skeptic. What about if we, by your logic, we'd have a million editors out there and no writers? But the situation is opposite because everyone is egocentric and they only want to please themselves. Fascinating. That's the trick. That's the trick. Right? I mean, people create art because they're doing it solely for themselves a lot of the time. And I think that's a problem. 
right? I think the purpose of art and the purpose of teaching and the purpose of a lot of we do should be concentrated on the other person. What sort of benefits am I giving the other person? What sort of pleasure am I giving the other person? What sort of needs am I fulfilling for the other person? If there was one kind of line, one conclusion to deduce from this conversation, what I'm getting out of it, it's this commitment to the other over the self when it comes to marketplace work. Yeah. And ironically, you'll actually benefit yourself a lot more if you do concentrate on the other person. Hmm. I mean, not to be like meta cynical or anything, but if you really want to help yourself out, concentrate on other people, but you should concentrate on other people for the sake of other people. Hmm. We had Ryan Holiday on the show quite a while ago. Uh, I think we had just written the book, The Obstacles Away, and it was before his um, Ego is the Enemy came out. And are you familiar with Ryan? Mm -mm. So Ryan Holiday is this uh, stoic author. He's my favorite atheist. His last book, uh, Ego is the Enemy, I call it the best book on becoming a Christian written by an atheist. And because he basically is arguing for humility and he argues from it from a very pragmatic perspective. Like it just, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to benefit from humility. <laughs> it really works. And he's quoting like guys like C.S. Lewis and all those people. It's so funny. But I, I think he's tapped into something profound which is when you do things for the right, in the right way, for the right reasons, you get a right result. And that's what I'm hearing you describe right now, too, is it's almost like a universal of if you're in the service business, if you're a service professional and you actually serve the other, guess what? You're the benefactor. But the moment you make it about you, you compromise the very thing that you were committed to in the first place. Totally. Yeah. We're going to pause here, but I want you back on the show, John, because uh, <laughs> honestly, because I want to, I want to talk to you a year from now. So it's one thing like people are at home and they're hearing this kind of uptick superstar moment, but I'm actually interested in the retention. Like we're in this conversation a year from now, where will you be? So would you come back on the show and report back how things are going? I volunteer myself a year from now. All right. <laughs> we'll come back Excellent. and give you the update. John, thank you so much for being here and thanks so much for serving our audience today. Thank you. It was lovely being on the show. This was episode three, season three of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. Converge podcast is brought to you by Fastermind.co, where we help entrepreneurs go from knowing to doing. Get started free today by finding out your Fastermind underscore. Go to Fastermind.co. Music for this episode provided by triplescoopmusic.com. What does your story sound like? This episode was mixed and produced by Podcast Fast Track.